Rewilding is not about abandoning civilization, but about enhancing it. It is to love not man less, but nature more. George Monbiot. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same, or maybe you long to. That quite powerful quote was provided by today's guest, who is Victoria Fillmore of Cedar Hill Homestead. Um, I've worked for her doing some illustration work on, um, on her logo that's up on Instagram, and I'm actually currently doing a bandana that uh, was inspired by her Russian and Baltic ancestry. It's a bandana that shows off uh, kind of all these different aspects of homesteading life. So I'm really excited to be working on that. And you can see that on my Instagram account, Our Numinous Nature. I'm going to read you a little bit of a quote about who Victoria is. This is from her website, Cedar Hill, Cedar Hill Homestead, tn.com. Victoria is a tried and true community herbalist whose entire business has been built by making remedies for any and everyone that comes to her in need. Her passion lies in seasonal and bioregional medicine with the belief that what you need is already out there waiting when you need it. She works with native plants and invasive invasive species alike, working to educate on the importance of knowing the difference and how to work with both. Victoria works with her local parks department to glean invasive plants, making way for the natives to flourish, as well as teaching free community plant walks. So that's just a little bit about her on her bio. It goes on. I'm excited for you to hear this podcast today. Once Victoria tells the story of her accidental Lakota mentor out in Colorado, wow, the conversation really becomes quite uh, potent with spirit, I guess. I don't know. It sounds a little weird to say, but it kind of feels that way. It kind of the conversation really like becomes, uh, at least for me, was like really powerful. So I'm excited for you to hear that. So this was the second stop on our road trip out West. So we, the first was in Eastern Tennessee, where we interviewed Lynn Faust, the lightning bug lady. And if you didn't get a chance to listen to that podcast, wow, she's like hanging out with just an incredibly passionate and inspiring, um, you know, she's not quite a granny age yet, but that's kind of the feeling she has that she inspires in one, what the best of a grandmother would inspire in their grandchild, which is wonder for life. So now we are in central to central western Tennessee with Cedar Hill Homestead. And next week, we are going to be in the Missouri Ozarks interviewing a country sheriff who is a fur buyer and a trapper. So that's what we're looking forward to. 
Now, I've been trying to think of some ways to keep generating momentum on the podcast. It looks like we have a um, listenership that has been there basically for the whole, from from the very first podcast, we've had about the same amount of folks listen to all of them. Some of them have been, been, been more popular, but so I'm really thankful for that. I'm really thankful for you checking this out and I hope it's interesting, but I'm trying to think of some ways to perhaps generate a little... Um, a little more action on the podcast. You know, I haven't gone to any festivals this year, obviously, because of COVID. So I have a lot of overstock on my t-shirts and my books. So I was thinking maybe something I could do is if you leave a review, the first three people to leave a review when this podcast comes out, um, you'll get a free Herbaceous Human coloring book. And if you don't know about Herbaceous Human, it is a coloring book that I made years ago with my mom, who is an herbalist, and she was in one of her kind of final classes, and we did this um, book together. She gave me the information, and she asked me to illustrate it, and then I decided to turn it into a product. And it's been in a lot of apothecaries, and a lot of herbalists have buy it over the years, and I'm super grateful to all these people because this book has kind of transformed my life back when I was in New York. So... Uh, the first three people, if you leave a review and, you know, j I guess just tell me whatever you think. If you uh, think I'm an asshole and I say fascinating and interesting and cool too much, which I do and it annoys me, I'm trying to figure out what I could say other than that, then you can say that. And if you want to say something about the podcast that's nice, that works too. And the first three people that leave a review, you're going to have to like put your Instagram handle or something so I can contact you, but I'll send you a free herbaceous human coloring book. So that goes out to the first three people leaving a review when this podcast comes out on Wednesday. Okay. Before we get into the interview, I just wanted to share a cool little story that we saw on our road trip. So we love names of things. I love names of roads. I've always paying attention to them when I'm driving. I remember when I lived in New York City, when I would go upstate, there was like Cat Rock Road in on the uh, Hudson River. And on our road trip, we saw a Possum Hollow Road. I love that. I've seen a Squirrel Road in West Virginia. And here where I live, there's Dismal Hollow Road. And that is just the best name ever. I'm, I'm actually going to end up writing a book or a movie, some super dark, dark tale of Appalachia called Dismal Hollow but on our drive, we saw a state park with a real weird name. So I asked my girlfriend while I'm driving, hey, can, you, can we look up what the hell this is? So she looked it up, and I wanted to share this story. This is a park in southwestern Virginia. So it was on our way to Tennessee. And there's supposedly multiple legends on how it got its name, but this is the one that's the most um, sensational. So I'll read that one because it's the most exciting. So I'm going to read you an excerpt from a 1963 daily press from Newport News, uh, Hampton, Virginia. So this talks about how the park got its name. There is an interesting legend about the park. It is generally accepted in southwest Virginia as a true story. As the story goes, a raiding party of Shawnee Indians crossed the mountains and destroyed several villages on New River, 
One survivor, Molly Marley, and her baby daughter were carried off by the Shawnee. The woman finally escaped with her child, crossing the torturous Allegheny Mountains, wild berries being their only food for many days. The mother finally collapsed at the foot of what is now known as Molly's Knob. The child wandered down the creek until she reached a group of houses. The only words she could utter, according to the story, were, Hungry mother, hungry mother. A search party found the mother dead. And as you might have come to the conclusion, that state park is called Hungry Mother State Park. Tell me a little bit about where we are right now. So we're in Tennessee. Yep. Um, We're in Kingston Springs, Tennessee. Um, We are on eight acres that we really try to keep wild other than this little half acre that we're situated on with animals. Um, We are right by the mounds that we kind of briefly talked about. Um, There's a lot of history that's still really present in this area. And... And you have a big state park right here. We do. We've got a few parks. We're right on the Harpeth River. So this is the Harpeth River State Park. Um, And then there's a few little parks in the WMA, the game reserve too. Mm. Yeah. And you have a big river. So basically right now we're in the woods and then it opens up into kind of a little um, rural valley. And then there's a big river that cuts through. Yeah. The Harpeth River is really gorgeous. It's very populated um, these days. It's like the one tourist attraction that we have out here. It's how the cities really keep everything going. Mm. Um, but there's still a lot of untouched areas out here too. Mm. So I like to start these things by asking if you've had any interesting um, plant, animal, fungus, or weather observations like in the last week or so. Yeah. And I'll tell you what I, what we saw on the way here. Okay. Not this morning, but when we were driving from East Tennessee yesterday, we're, you know, on the highway. Yeah. I was like, holy shit, do you see that? And it was an armadillo. Oh yeah. Are which, you guys not used no, to that? We have no armadillos. So, and <laughs> oh, then we funny. looked it up and we see that it's like kind of a pest. Oh yeah. And that they, they can, they, they're the only animal that can get leprosy and pass yes. it to humans. Oh yeah. What the hell? Yeah, that's, I forget sometimes that that's not everywhere. Um, But I lived in Florida briefly in middle school to take care of my grandmother. And I guess I just hadn't really noticed the armadillos here before that as a child. And when we came back, um, it was like, oh, there's armadillos everywhere. And I'd never really seen one outside of TV. But now, I mean, they burrow all over here. Wow. And they're all through the woods, on the roads. They're absolutely everywhere. And yeah, it's hard. Uh, are they native to here? Or are they, they are, they... I actually don't know the answer to that question. Okay. But the leprosy thing is really strange. Uh, we, you know, love to pick up and collect bones and mm-hmm. skulls and things. And it's really hard sometimes. They're so cool. You really want to get up close and mm. look at their weird little claws and... They're shells, but it's, you know, not really safe to touch them. Really? You're just told not to touch them? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. That sucks. Yeah, we're kindred spirits, and especially my girlfriend with your, with your style, with the bone collecting. Yeah. Taking little, you know, little um, tchotchkes, tchotchkes, <laughs> tchotchkes yeah. from the woods and totally. making little statues and whatnot. That's cool. So have you had any interesting nature encounters? Yeah. So let's see. As far as animal encounters go... It can be plant, too. Okay. 
So we've had, I mean, a little bit of everything. Um, most recently with animals, we had a rat snake that we found in the goat pen. And, you know, it was, it's always scary when you first see it. But seeing that it was a rat snake was calming. It was like, oh, all right, this is a friend. And we've actually been dealing with a really intense mouse problem in the house. Mm. And so, you know, I let it be. The goats weren't in there. I was just changing their food bowls. So we decided not to worry about it. It wasn't there when I came back out. The next day, it was in the goat pen with them. It wasn't bothering them. They really didn't seem to care about it at all. I was going to ask that if it spooks them. Yeah, no, it didn't seem to. It definitely spooked the chickens. Um, And that was one thing we were worried about is even though rat snakes don't typically bite chickens or goats, um, the chickens will peck at snakes sometimes. Mm. So we were a little worried about that, but we were watching it for a couple days and uh, no one seemed to mess with it. It wasn't messing with anyone and it really actually helped with the mouse problem. You 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 actually could perceive the that the mouse problem is like I'm not sure if you've had one, but it was like ten a night we would catch, wow. and we have the catch and release kind, mm. and so we would walk really far up the hill, mm. and we were you know it was every night, so you're mm. like, are they coming back? Are we idiots for trying to do it this way? Um, or is it really that they've just populated so much? So yeah, this, the snake absolutely helped. And so we were trying to coexist with it. It was working well. Um, but one morning I came out because the chickens were just going crazy Mm. and the snake was in their laying station, just Mm. totally engorged with a giant egg in its belly. And it was, it's, it was huge, like really a large snake. So they were pretty scared at that point. So we got it out and we relocated it. Mm. Um, but it was nice while it lasted. That's really it was cool. A good relationship. That's really cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, recently, Vivian just found a. Uh, well, she's in the. So she just. So my girlfriend moved down. I guess a year and a few months ago, and in that time, she's found two perfect. Perfectly intact black uh, rat snake yeah. sheds. Yeah, and we just found one a few weeks ago. We've got so yeah, we've got all, obviously all like all these rodents under our yeah. house, and we had, um, I mean, we've have copperheads in the basement and yeah. all the black snakes. So it's a little scary down there. It's not really a basement. It's like yeah. uh, you open a door and it's like rubble and dirt. That's we have that too. Okay, and I believe that's where the mice come from and where the snakes hang. And we've got lots of frogs and lizards under there too. Um, we really like as you can hear with the birds too, it feels at times like we attract all the animals Mm. from around here with all the food for our animals that's everywhere. Mm. Um, And I'm sure they also attract them with their scent and their poop. Um, And so we've got just so many birds and lizards and frogs and raccoons and possums Mm. and snakes and absolutely everything. That's fun. Yeah. feels like a sanctuary. That's very fun. All right. Well, tell us, a little bit about you and then what uh, you and your family are doing here on your, you said it was six acres? Eight acres. Eight acres. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we are Cedar Hill Homestead. Um, we had a small business before we moved back out here. We were living in Nashville. Oh, okay. And I was working with herbs then. We had an apothecary. Um, but when we came out here to really do what we wanted to do, it was so much more, it expanded a lot. And that's when we took on the name Homestead. Um, And so our vision and what we really try to do is 
bring people closer to this land. So we're very focused on bioregional medicine, um, using the invasives in this area that, you know, would otherwise be getting mowed or weed whacked or killed or bleached. Um, and we try to bring everything that we can into it. And part of that vision was, you know, wanting to spend more time together. Francesco and I, before owning the business, have always been of the mind, like, whatever we're doing is not the main focus of our life as long as we're not working so much that we're not seeing each other and mm -hmm. we're not being with Augustine and the animals. Um, Augustine is your son. Yeah. And you said he was eight? He's nine years old. Nine years old. Yeah. And so we've always wanted to just do whatever we could that meant that we had the most time together because that's really the focus. So when we came out here and we could sort of expand and take on all the ideas and dreams that we had, um, our forever goal that it takes a lot of upkeep is trying to keep it all a part of Cedar Hill Homestead because if not, sometimes they can things can get left behind because the business is so demanding at this point. So we really just try to merge it all together. And at times that can be really hard. You know, I think um, it's probably a lot easier to have just a few things that you do in your business. But we, tr we try to not break away from the fact that our business is kind of our family and our homestead. Um, yeah. So there's a little bit of two things going on. There's the homestead here with your goats and your chickens and your garden. And then yeah. you also have a successful uh, herbal yeah. uh, business. Yep. Okay. We teach classes. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. We, we had to cancel them this year, of course. But we last year taught five classes and we also did a free monthly plant walk at the a park on the river right by the mounds. Um, we did that once a month and it's all ages, open to whoever. Um and we want to do workshops as well um, at one point, like really allow people the time to get in the swing of things. It always feels like during a class, even if it's a few hours, right at the end is when people are like feeling it. They're mm -hmm. finally comfortable. Mm -hmm. They don't feel like they have to ask a bunch of questions. They're really like starting to trust their intuition because they've learned some things. They have more of an understanding of it. So I would love to get to a point where we can host more workshops and give people the opportunity to stay in that place. How long are the classes for a little bit. now and how long would you like them to be? Um, right now, we've, we had been doing, we started out trying to do an hour and that mm -hmm. never worked out. Mm -hmm. So they're typically two to four hours long. Okay, cool. Yeah, well, I mean, I find that with the podcast. I find that with... Um, I do a, like a weekly men's group where we all meet on, on like Skype Yeah, and you know, it takes two hours yeah. for something immense like to does. explode out. You yeah, know? totally. Some like hardcore thing about that someone had never put two and two together from yeah. their childhood blows out with at the last 10 minutes of our yes. two and a half hour, uh, you know, meeting. Yeah. And then it's, what do you do at that point? Do you call it? Do <laughs> yeah. you keep going for the people who right. can? It's right. Yeah. Right. We've never um we've never had more time to mm. give. We've always run out of time. So mm. we've been trying to make them longer and longer. But that can be intimidating for some people when they're signing up for a class, they're already making a drive, you know. Mm -hmm. um, Are they coming from Nashville? Most of the time. Our our walks ended up being mostly people out here. Oh, cool. And that was really nice because when we first came out here after having the business in Nashville for so long, 
Um, I just didn't know how many people here would be interested and would show up. Uh, but then it really sort of took a wild turn and we have a very nice community out here. Um, a lot of people support our business. We do porch pickups all the time and the plant walks were mostly people out here. And is it mainly older people? Mostly like when, so when we first moved out here, yeah, we didn't know quite what to expect. And most of the people were older and we were finding ourselves hanging out with people a lot older than us Mm -hmm. a lot. Um, But we found out that, or we realized, I guess, you know, everyone who lives out here, like lives out here for the same reason. No one is living out here for like, forced reasons that you see in the city where people are just kind of forced into different parts of it. Um, a lot of, most people have chosen to be out here. Of course, some people have inherited land and homes and whatnot, but, um, we have something in common with everyone out here. Mm. And it's sort of how, um, what's the right way to describe this? Sort of like, you know, you've read some of the uh, Foxfire books now. We're just starting. Okay. We've, we've talked about that back yeah. and forth. So, like, the history of... And and for reference, if you're listening, the Foxfire books are those books, and feel free to butt in. Yeah. They're, they're, I think there's maybe 12 of them. I and, think there's more. Really? Yeah. Okay. And they're just these volumes of like how to back to the land movement. It was written by high school kids who were going as a project, were going out in the mountains and trying to figure out how to make banjos, cabins, how to, to forage, how to interviewing all kinds of elders, really, um, really interesting people, which I feel like you've caught the bug on too. Just how many, Oh, there's so many amazing old people. Yeah. Like I just did an interview yesterday and I asked her like, Hey, so she was, she's probably in her 60s and her husband's in his late 70s. And I was like, hey, can, I want to come back and interview old timers. And they were like, all the old timers are dead. So I guess they're the old timers. Yeah. Like the man is 78 years old. Yeah. And has this incredible That's knowledge. Interesting. But he doesn't see himself as an old timer. Yeah. Whoever you ask, it's the generation, it's their grandparents' That's generation. That's an interesting right? point. But yeah. No one really says, oh, I'm the old timer. Yeah. Because what, <laughs> you know, as things become progress and become more modern. Yeah. All that knowledge is getting more and more distant, I guess. Yeah, that is an interesting point. When are you the old timer? Yeah, so... I'm sorry to cut you off. You were just starting to talk about no, the Foxfire books. No, you're totally fine. Um, so the way that the people who are being interviewed in those books, and kind of like you're saying, they don't necessarily know any difference. So like they don't know that they're herbalists, for example. Like a lot of the people who worked with herbal medicine and religious healing and all kinds of stuff in Appalachia did not take those names on and did not consider that they were practicing that in any way. And so that is still very much alive, I feel like, in all the more country parts here where I might introduce myself to someone as an herbalist mm. and they're like, wow, what's, you know, what's that? And then we get to talking and they're like I do all the same eating stuff. poke salad and poke salad. Definitely. And from like the, harvesting dandelion from the poke greens. And those aren't poisonous. You have to cook them. They have to be heated to cook that out. And so the most common recipe, cause I always have you done this? ask. Yeah. 
Um, but I, every time I hear that from people out here, I'll ask them their recipe. And it sounds like, you know, it's kind of like nettles and things. When you first read about how to properly cook them, it can sound like there's all these extra steps involved. But when you ask people for their, like, how they do it out here, they're like, oh, you know, I just chop it up, throw it in a pan with a little bit of water, strain the water off, then you add your oil, your onions, mm-hmm. or whatever. So they're just kind of naturally doing that part where you cook out some of the toxic properties. Um, but, yeah, you you talk to these people, and they're, like, feeding their goats Lace Padeza as a mm-hmm. dewormer, and they know the names of all of the plants that are out here. Mm-hmm. They've just never considered that that was— different Mm -hmm. or might have a name so just life yeah so Mm. we you know have have a lot in common with a lot of people how poisonous if you just grab some of those pokeberries how poisonous is that plant um it's i mean another interesting thing is like elderberries pokeberries and some of those berries that have more toxic properties People, again, it's like you hear that the seeds have the most Mm. toxic properties, so spit the seeds out. And I feel like when people hear that, they're like, again, extra steps or like, oh, you got to be careful. But the seeds are not enjoyable. You would be spitting them out anyways. Mm. They're very hard. They could hurt your teeth. Um, And so, of course, they should be, you know, you should err on the side of caution. You shouldn't eat like a whole handful and swallow (laughs) the seeds. Oh, we just had a chicken go bonkers back there. Maybe your snake just <laughs> grabbed Gertrude. its foot. Yeah, maybe. Um, but so, I mean, yeah. you you We eat a couple on a trail. Like we'll, you know, put a couple in our mouth and speed the sit. What am I saying? Spit the seeds out. Speed the sits out. Wow. Um, and that's fine. So you know, cool. You just don't want to like really go all. for it. Yeah, definitely. And another thing is like, I understand why we're hearing that, like, pokeberry is poisonous, elderberry is poisonous, you know, because when those statements are coming out, they're being told to everyone. Yes. And if someone didn't have the respect for nature of, like, getting to know a plant and taking the time to understand those things— they might go and eat a whole bunch of them mm-hmm. or, you know, hurt themselves accidentally. Mm-hmm. And so, you you know, those statements are really for the safety of the general population. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, but when you start eating wild foods, your body starts, you know, adapting and learning what to do with the constituents of that plant. Um, Augustine's been eating wild food his whole life at this point. So, and so cool. What a cool guy. Absolutely. Um, when we make, we had talked about uh, garlic mustard. Yes, Garlic yes, mustard you. can be really bitter. So for the listener, I've I've reached out to you a handful of times with my foraging questions. Yeah. And so you've been very helpful. Yeah. And especially I had eaten, like you were about to say, with the garlic mustard. Yeah. I ate it the wrong time last year and I was like, this is awful. Yeah. How is it? And then this year, I mean, it's my girlfriend's fa- one of her favorite dishes yeah. was a pesto. At the right pasta. time, it's perfect. It's really flavorful. It's one of our favorite wild edibles. And that's anyone who doesn't know, every, the majority of people do, but that's a majorly invasive one. Yes, totally. Um, I actually have a friend from Massachusetts when I was doing a class and we, I think Francesco made a garlic mustard nettle gnocchi. And she was telling us that back home, her grandparents would pay all of her brothers and sisters and her 
to go and pull the garlic mustard out and put just fill giant bags full of it to get rid of it. And they just could not keep up with it. It was so invasive. Um, but that, when it is bitter, we, we still eat it. You know, it's still around. We still eat it. And sometimes at a certain stage, it's too bitter for me. Mm-hmm. And Augustine will not even say a word about it like he's his body is used to bitter flavors now which is amazing because a lot of adults you know as as the bitter flavor palette starts to regain popularity um, a lot of adults are having to adjust back to those bitter flavors that have mm-hmm. been taken out of foods um, and I just think it's really amazing that he won't have to go even as that. a baby you're feeding him very, yeah, very young. Maybe not so a baby cool. baby, but as soon as he was eating solid foods. And even like, not necessarily just in cooking, but when we are walking, we'll take a couple pine needles and chew on them throughout the walk. I just think that, um, you know, you're activating so much in your body when you taste those flavors. Mm-hmm. And there's so much research coming out about that right now too like all of the things that happen and the signals in the body and the nerves when you taste those wild foods so Mm. even if we're not like enjoying a meal or trying to do something crazy with it like making a beer or mead just nibbling on it and you know it just does so much for us so cool what are you making so which plants are you using for your the beers and meads right now we've got of course, we just started another batch of elderberry wine, and that also means that we're getting ready to be able to open last year's elderberry wine, which is very exciting. Um, we've been we usually use the elderberry wine in our classes, and so we run out so fast. Mm. But this year we, we didn't have the classes, so we're looking forward to enjoying the elderberry wine um, together. We've also got. We focused a lot more on vinegars this year. We've got a lot of vinegars going on. I know we've got, I think, a wild pear and something mead. Hmm. I can't remember the exact flavor. And then something else that we really like to do is last summer when we were traveling through South Dakota, Wyoming, Montana, and Colorado, we will make a starter in each place. So then we can bring those flavors home with us. And so cool. Make bread, beer, sodas. Um, and I think that's a really like nice ritual to, you know, you it only you, you could really make a starter from a single leaf or petal or any part of the plant. So it's a really nice, respectful way to just take a little bit and still have like that keepsake of a place. It's a bread starter. It's a yeast. Yeah, it's wild yeast. It's just okay. capturing wild yeast and you can do it a couple different ways. Um, what we're doing when we're traveling and making those starters is we're making a mixture of sugar and water, and we're taking whatever plant we want to use and sticking it in a jar with the sugar and the water. And you can cover it loosely with cheesecloth or something. We typically put the lid back on. We just don't tighten it all the way. Um, tighten it once a day to shake it, re-loosen it. It'll start to... F- bubble up and get really active and then you've got your starter and we typically will strain it and keep it in the fridge to pull from whenever um but you're just sort of so neat stealing the wild yeast from plants and something that I think is really interesting about that process too is you know uh working with poisonous plants is gaining popularity right now like the fact that 
we can live in relation with them. Like people are making essences from poison ivy, from deterra. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay, I didn't know that. Because when you're taking um, a flower essence, you're not extracting the plant. You're just collecting the essence. And so it's you're not taking those properties from it that could be harmful to you. And I think it's interesting with the wild yeast, you can essentially steal the wild yeast off of a poisonous plant and utilize it as long as you're then taking the plant out of it. You're not getting any of the toxic properties from the plant. And I think that that's another um, or could be another interesting way to be in relation with poisonous plants. That is so cool. Yeah. Are you guys doing stuff that there's no guidebook? Are you free? Um, is like a lot of this stuff experimental on your That's a funny end? question because yes, totally. And okay. I was having a conversation with someone the other day. She was asking me some questions and I was just going off with answers. And she said something at one point like, sorry to bother you. I'm sure there's like a guidebook out there somewhere that has all this in it. And I was like, hmm. No. <laughs> no. If you find it, let me know. Um, that said... That's something I would love to do one day. I would oh, love to. Cool. I really want to write a book in a way that encourages experimentation. I feel like with the endangered plants, um, I feel like some of that has come from really popular herbal books that have you know strict recipes that call for like golden seal hmm. um, or pipsisua and things. And so people are specifically seeking out those plants. I would hmm. love to write a book one day that is more so recipes, formulas, and whatnot that are like, this is what we're using. Here's some other options that might be, you know, more prevalent in your area. Um, Things, you know, that have the same energetics, the same flavor components and whatnot. Um, Because that's something that I find a lot in teaching is People really want instructions, like very detailed. They do not want to mess up. They don't want to have to think about it and rely on their own knowledge that they're not confident in. But it's like it's all experimentation. Like herbalism should not be science forward. Of course, I'm you know, there's a heavy um, chemistry scientific component. But before that, it's as simple as, you know, going out and sitting with a plant and experimenting it and how, or sorry, experiencing it and how you experience it can look a million different ways. And I feel like when I'm telling someone exactly how to do that, it's really taking away from a very important part of that experience. Mm. Well, I'm a, I'm a perpetual beginner. I'm a beginner at everything. And I do think in the beginning, you need yeah. Super hard rules. Yeah. Because you need to see step one, two, three, four, five. Totally. And then then it'll end up the final product will be like this. Like, okay, that's yeah. exactly what it said. Especially with the wild foods. I'm such a neurotic, paranoid person. I'm always like, oh my God, I just poisoned me and yeah. bit my girlfriend. Like, so I think it is very helpful at at least at first to yeah. really have those hard rules. Yeah, that's something that I'm navigating to you because I'm very the opposite. And you mentioned that to me. Yeah. You like just trust your intuition. Super. I do not like rules. Um, I cannot follow a recipe. Mm-hmm. Francesco is really good about that aspect in the business because he's been a chef for so long. Oh, that's right. Okay. Um, but so 
when I'm teaching, though, like what I would rather do is all of the things that happen throughout you following a recipe that make you second guess yourself or that make you nervous that you might be poisoning yourself. I want to give you the tools to navigate that on your own. Mm. And I understand that for some people, following that hard recipe first is crucial. And I Mm -hmm. totally get that. But like after you've got it down, that's that's when the experimentation has to come in. I mean, you know, you know that I lived in New York City for like 10 years. I didn't cook. Yeah. I mean, that most, I mean, so I'm 30 years old and I don't know how to cook. It's kind of embarrassing. (laughs) And And, you know, the only thing I would do is like make, eggs and eat it with a piece of hummus and a pita. Because yeah. in New York City, the culture, you, you don't even make coffee. Yeah, Like you go totally. out and get coffee every single day and then you go in and you eat out all day long. Yeah. And, it, and even if you don't even have that much money because you can get an incredible like Asian meal for yeah. like $8. So having to learn how to cook. Yeah. Well, that was it. back to this. It's like I needed those exact rules. Yeah. And then now that I've been cooking for three years, like now – all the rules kind of, now you just know, you have a yeah, feeling of it. it becomes a little more natural. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's but interesting. you understand what spices go with what yes. and how much salt and all that. So you don't even, so now, you know, I've reached a point, which I'm sure everybody listening who cooks, this is like obvious, but you, where you just, you just look at the ingredients and you yes. don't look at it, you don't look at the That's below. That's my style, yeah, for sure. Because you're like, okay. Yeah, and of course, sometimes, you know, that is going to result in failure, um, but that's another part of the process, you know, and I think a lot of people coming into herbalism um, do not, they want to escape failure. Mm. And of course I understand that, you know, like it'd be great to never fail. Um, And someone did bring up a good point to me recently of like getting into herbalism is expensive. It can be if you don't go slow. And for us, that process was like, we wanted to start, well, I sort of realized we had to start making everything for ourselves in order to be able to afford it. And that's really when we started offering products for sale too, is it's much more sustainable to make large batches when you're making a batch for yourself. Um, And of course, family and friends would come over and see things and they would want it too. Um, But if you are... If you get the herbalism bug and you want to just jump into it and have everything right now, which a lot of people do, it's very exciting. Um, they want to buy all the supplies, all the equipment. They want to get it right the first time. And so the idea of having to toss an oil that's got this fresh plant in it that is a very short season, like let's say St. John's wort, you've got to use it when it's fresh. Um, and you've got really like a solid two weeks and really elderberry is the same before the birds start to get to it. Um, the idea of losing that is heartbreaking. Yeah. I definitely get that. Um, and so, you know, maybe experiment with things that are more readily available. I recently Um, did that with, we found, um, wood nettles along a Creek where we were camping and I collected a bucket and then I got home and I was tired. And so I just kind of left it there and it yeah. kind of just got browned up. So it's yeah. like, well, I just kind of wasted this. Totally. But we dried it out and I think Vivian's going to see if she can make incense or something. Yeah. With it. But yeah, I know what you mean. It is kind of like you don't want to completely waste these yeah. very small windows to do stuff. And I think what like what you just said too, when you find something that you've been looking for or learning about that you've heard of, it's easy to feel excited about it. And so you want to 
like have it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that happens in the beginning. But something I try to explain to people when I'm teaching is that when you're looking at a plant, especially when you're trying to work with fresh plants seasonally, rather than thinking, oh, I want to make this tincture for this or this for this, what I do at least is I look at the plant and I ask myself how I'm going to preserve it. Mm. And I'm either going to preserve it typically in alcohol or oil, or I'm going to dry it for tea or whatnot. And so my apothecary is full of jars because I'm preserving all these herbs. And that's just how I've always, like, that's how I came into it is I really wanted to experience plants. I wanted to know about the plants that were in my area, what they tasted like, what they felt like. So that was how I started was looking at them in that way. Um, And I found that that made it a lot easier to kind of skip that part where like, oh, I didn't use it in time um, because you're instantly preserving it. Mm. And creating the plan before you even harvest it. Yeah. And Mm. I think that can be a little intimidating um, for some people too, especially because, I mean, it will take a lot of oil and alcohol. What's it called when you preserve it in oil? Um, just an oil infusion. Oil infusion. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes because my mom is the one who's the herbalist and I, I just have learned bits and pieces from people around me. But so I sometimes forget what exactly everything is. Yeah. So tincture is with alcohol. Yes. Oxymel is with vinegar. Yeah. And what's it with honey? The oxymel is when it's the vinegar and honey. Oh, okay. Um, and then for a honey infusion and an oil infusion that I just call it those. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think of other ones. I mean, some people use glycerin. We don't yeah, really gl- use glycerin. Yeah, my glycerin mom has done those. Yeah, I'll do them occasionally for you know clients that can't. And that ends up being like a, a sugary. Yeah, it is actually really similar to an alcohol. Yeah, um, it's very sweet mm-hmm. and very thick. Did you apprentice under someone for herbalism, or how'd you get into herbalism? Um, it's an interesting story. It was sort of an accidental apprentice. I moved to Colorado when I was 19, and I was there for a few years. And when I moved to Colorado, something happened. I'm sure it was being in a new scenery that was so overwhelming. Like, the, it is so beautiful there. It's one of my favorite places. I was in northern Colorado, pretty close to Wyoming, in a mountain town called Jamestown. So when I moved to Colorado, we were living at the top of a mountain, um, pretty much off grid. We had well water, wood burning stove, and I started becoming really obsessed with the idea of self-sufficiency and, you know, learning more about gathering meat for myself and plants. And I wanted to learn. I was, I felt very open. I didn't have any friends or family in Colorado. So I was really sort of on a soul seeking thing. And I felt very in tune. Like it really felt like if I wanted something, I could get it. Um, I know it sounds a little weird, but I, when you're really in tune with yourself, you can just hear and feel things going on. And so me being there alone and living up in that mountain town with no internet, no phones, and just like chopping wood and carrying water, 
I felt very, very in tune. So I had gone down to Boulder for something to run errands, who knows what. And I was in a little coffee shop and um, I was just sitting there like reading, getting ready to do my day. And this man came and sat down um, in front of me and we just started talking and he asked if I would come meet his wife. And I didn't really at that point know why, like we hadn't talked about anything specific. And, but you know, like I got a very great feeling from him. It wasn't weird at all. Um, so I drove to their home and met his wife. Um, he, they were Lakota and they, he, I realized later that what was happening was that he was getting older and he was physically not well, um, not in good health. And I think that he had been trying to call in a student, really. And I had been kind of trying to call in a teacher. And I went to their home all the time, as often as I could. It was pretty far away, too, but it was, you know, like, other than working to be able to pay the bills, I wasn't doing anything else that was begging for my time. So I was there all the time. And the interesting thing is, Again, he would not call himself an herbalist, and I wasn't learning herbal teachings, but the plants around their home were a huge part of their life. And so in learning from him and spending time with the both of them, I truly learned almost everything I know. The first plant that I learned about with them was OSHA because they had a, a patch of OSHA on their land that they had been tending. I mean, I think people had been tending them before they were there. And OSHA is a very hard, a difficult plant to grow. And so that's why there's really so many issues with overharvesting is it's it also takes a very long time to grow. It's not something that just drops seeds and pops up and it's ready to go. Um, so you really have to be very mindful when harvesting it. Um, and so that was a really cool experience because I learned how to harvest roots in a way that could continue the growth of the plant. And you're not, you know, using a big shovel and just taking the entire plant, um, separating roots and like then for, therefore encouraging them to grow multiple plants. Um, and I have, that is a patch that I now go back to. He's passed away. Um, and something that I've gotten to continue tending um, which has felt really special with him gone. When I first learned about it um, from him, it was, they were burning it. They would dry the roots out and yeah, they would just light them and burn it. The smaller pieces of the roots, you know, would get put on the fire or charcoal, um, but you would waft the smoke from the OSHA into your lungs. The smell is like something that is so special. The perspective thing was huge for me. I, um, mo most of my life up until actually when I started teaching, I've been incredibly quiet, like the type of quiet that is upsetting and intimidating for some people. Like I, I did not like talking about small talk. So most of my life that was an issue, you know, like going through high school and going to parties and being like the awkward one that doesn't talk and just really all the time, it was kind of an issue. And when I met him and his family and the Lakota people that they spent time with there, that was well-respected. 
if you ask questions without like thinking first, you know, the kind of person that's just constantly talking and asking questions and they're not even trying to figure it out, just kind of coming out, that was looked down upon of like, why, why would you not, you know, search for the answers first? And I remember one of the people there saying to a child, um, what do I have that you don't have? Like, what, what does my soul have other than age, of course, that your soul doesn't have? Why do I have the answers or why would I have answers that you don't have essentially? And just saying like the same way that they learned, anyone can learn. And it was interesting because the way I described feeling there of like very in tune, my eyes were open, my ears were open, like I was just receiving. Um, I did feel like a lot of information came to me without having to like research and seek it out. To wrap up the story, my teacher there in Colorado, his name was Hawk, and he passed away right as I was moving home. And I came home to Tennessee. I'd been home for a little bit. Um, I was a little upset to have moved. Like the reason that I left Colorado was like a very strange landlord issue. It was not like, I'm ready to come home. Um, and I really wasn't quite ready. I ended up traveling a little bit. I went to New York in the Northeast for the first time and kind of explored the area that I knew my great, great aunts, um, had come to. I think I told you, I found out that they passed away together in the same apartment in the Bronx that they had come to when they first came to America, my aunts on my dad's side of the family. So when I left Colorado, I wasn't ready to come home yet. So I was traveling around. I went there, went to the Northeast and really experienced that and then came back home down, which drove through the Shenandoah Valley. Freaking amazing. And the Blue Ridge Parkway. So nice. Anyways, I get home to Tennessee. I'm with my best friend, Mary, who I had moved to Colorado and back with for a little bit. We're out here um, driving, who knows where. Anyways, we're, we're just driving. And I because I was kind of like irritated to be home, I wasn't in that same place anymore that I had been in Colorado of being very in tune. And I was having a lot of interesting feelings about his death. Um, and one of the first things that we had talked about when I came to his house to meet him and his wife was he was almost quizzing me a little bit, I guess, to see if I was the right student for him. And we talked a lot about death. And he told me that that was going to be one of my hardest lessons was things around death. And I hadn't experienced a lot of death at that point. Um, so I didn't, I didn't quite know what he meant. But when he passed away, I was very angry. I felt like what he had done was a little selfish. And I do not feel that way now, just being very raw and honest about the way I felt then. Um, because he was with me for such a short period of time, and it felt like he had, you know, found me, gave me this wonderful experience, invited me into his family, and then. Like, I think he knew he was dying and that was a part of our relationship and also probably why he was trying to prepare me so much for death. And so when he passed away and I was going through that hard time with the landlord and moving, I was very upset. And so coming home, 
I was so disconnected from things that I had learned from him and just not doing great. So we're driving one day and we're behind an 18-wheeler. Out of nowhere, we both see this hawk, red-tailed hawk, bombing towards us, like just going straight, fast as can be. There was absolutely nothing we could do. But we both saw it. I was trying to stop and it killed itself on my windshield like completely just we saw the whole thing it was one of the strangest things I've ever experienced um of course we pulled over and like took a look at it and I was trying to understand like what would have made it do that you know like it was in the perfect form of just when they go down to get prey like when they're just shoo and so it didn't seem like it had been previously injured who knows? I, I really don't know. Um, and I, I have my ideas around, you know, what that might have meant. I don't know exactly. I haven't, like, really tried to dive too deep into it. It's been a while now. Um, but I definitely saw it as sort of like a, a him, s- some sort of message. He died of natural causes. He... Um, I I never know if this is like something that other people will fully understand, but even the moment that I met him, he's one of those people who you don't really see their physical bodies. He was very large and not healthy. And even when I try really hard to think about what he looked like now, I have no photos, nothing. Um, It's really hard for me to imagine what he looked like because it just... I, I never really looked at his physical body, if that makes sense. Like, he just wasn't one of those people where that's what you see first. And so he was a healer. It's a strange word to use these days, but he worked one-on-one with people. And so he, another lesson that he really worked on with me and is still something that I have to work on today is dissipating after working with people so that you're not taking on everything that you're trying to help them with. And I guess he had learned that lesson too late. And so looking at in his home, like photos of him when he was younger, like before he had really come into his practice in his community, he looked completely different. And so him and his wife fully acknowledged that his body was not him anymore. And it was a lot of stories that he had taken on and people he had taken on. And so he just was in really poor health when he passed away. And that was something that we talked about a lot was having a dissipation practice. God, that's incredible. Yeah, it was. Because people will tell me the most fucked up shit. And then I like, uh, I mean, just recently someone was telling us such terrible stuff about folks here in Appalachia, just real, uh, despondent people. And uh, like, um, I like was afterwards, I was like floating around. I like, couldn't even like think about cooking and I started crying and I'm just like, Oh my God. And, and you know, I've had happen a lot of times people tell me really crazy stuff and then it really messes me up. Yeah. Where do you put it? I've lost my vision. Yeah. I've lost my vision for like a a day and thought I had to go to the hospital and I was just like, like hysterically crying. And I like knowing that there would knowing, having a premonition about yeah. a car crash with kids in it, and it ended up happening a week later. Oof. So it's just like, yeah, how do you, like, uh, how do you wash that stuff off you? Of have you? to put it somewhere. Yeah, that's uh, a really interesting 
thing to handle as someone who like works with people and plants, you know. And I want to, and it's odd because I do cherish those deep conversations yes. with people. And then I can also get so messed up by them. Yeah. So, you know, that's obviously something we work with in my men's group too, you know, hearing about guys in the group's childhoods that were, you know, yeah. getting the shit kicked down by their dad. And it's like, you know, you feel the rage. And mm-hmm. like after the conversation, I have to like go for a walk in the night because yes. I'm so fucking mad yeah. for them as a kid. Definitely. So yeah, how do you wash that all off of yourself? Yeah, I also think that... And 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 to hear you say that, it was actually like manifesting on his oh, body, yeah. other people's pain and yeah. whatever, showing up on his body. Like yeah. that's good for me to hear, to really think more about cleaning that off Definitely. myself. Yeah, and I, I guess that probably took... A part in why I did not see him physically, you know, as much as maybe because it it wasn't him anymore. Like it was so many things he had taken on. Um, And that definitely made like to see that too also was a strong message for me. But it's still one of the hardest things to know how to do, especially because the way that he thought and it's something that I very much understood too, which is a very animistic perspective was like, I guess one sort of ritual would be to bury it or to like put it somewhere else, the the people's stories that you've taken on. But the way that he thought... Mm, I really, I felt that kind of like in my arms. Yeah. So that's, I'm going to really pay attention to that. Yeah. And it's, that's a hard one too though, because then it's like, do you really want to put that back into the earth Mm. but the other side to that was that the earth knows what to do with it yeah the earth will recycle it the earth will can it can take it on it has a larger capacity but it is an interesting feeling when you are physically like hands in the dirt like really trying to intentionally remove this thing from you and put it there you you do feel um, the earth's part in that too, and that can be heavy as well. Okay, well, we're going on some tangents, but I do want to go back to what your thoughts were about yeah. the dive bombing of the hawk. Yeah. I do want to hear about you, because I even saw on your Instagram, you consider yourself and what you guys do to have animism as part yeah. of it. And, but um, what is going on in your head with the releasing of other people's stuff into the ground. Like, what do you actually, like, what's the process? Like, cause you know, I've studied little bits of witchcraft. Yeah. And like, you know, you'll be thinking, you know, you'll be, you create a sigil, right? You create a yeah. symbol, you create like a sentence or something, a, a, a wish or, um, I don't know what, what the right word is. That's not quite the, what, quite, quite the right word, but then you create a symbol of it and then you kind of get in an energetic state yeah. and then you release that symbol out and then you forget about it. So yeah. if you're burying someone else's pain, like yeah. what? Is it just like, are you like actually mad or sad and you're thinking about what they've told you and you're, as you're kind of milling around on the, in the dirt and just kind of yeah releasing um, it off your body into there? We always use something. And I think that for me was where the animism came in and I would feel bad taking a stick or a rock and putting it into that but it it can interesting yeah so if i'm so mad for like 
my buddy's childhood. Yeah. The fact that I'm putting like hatred and rage into a stone. Yeah. It's kind of, if you are an animist and you think that everything has a spirit and a soul and is alive, yeah. it's like, well, what? Like, yeah. You know, you just put rage into a rock. Totally. And I, I didn't know that that was how I felt at that time. Like I didn't understand that to be an animistic way of thinking. I just had resistance when they would do that. And when he would show me how to do that. But of course it wasn't like, this is what you do. It was, this is what you can do is you can have like an amulet or a fetish of some sort that you put it into. And when I verbalized that I had resistance towards that, he told me that, you know, I didn't have to use a a stick or a rock or something. Like I could instead just kind of part the dirt a bit and put my hands into it and try to put it into the earth Mm -hmm. that way instead of putting it into something mm-hmm. and burying it and you you yeah. hear these stories of haunted objects yeah it's like is that what they are she could be it's like a person who's just like yeah buzzing with absolutely. some kind of frequency and and buzzing with some intense emotion and is just charging up something in their home with that yeah. intensity for years and years and years and that's interesting and then later on generations later you touch oh there's a weird feeling with that Wow! Sword yeah. o- over there. That painting has a weird feeling. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, uh, you did just say something. Oh, well, yeah. I guess I was going to say. Oh, oh. Well, with my group, the way we do a lot of this stuff is, and this is what I do in my artwork, um, all my personal artwork, which is a lot of dream inspiration and stuff like yeah. that. Is uh, you have that huge emotion. It could be somebody else's, but you're feeling it, and then you you do a painting. You do something creative. So a lot of guys in my group, they'll do these, you know, free for all abstract paintings with smears. Yeah. You know, you know, I shared something about a story I'd heard that was just so awful about impoverished people that someone I know is working with. And it's so hopeless. And I sent, I sent a summary to the, the guys in my group and one of them was weeping and he was like, and he made this incredible abstract painting with that's the, amazing. with the, what I shared because yeah. he felt it so much. So that's very similar. So, you know, Definitely. getting it out of your body, because if it's not if it's out way. of your body, you're going to get sick. Yes. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good thing to bring up because Augustine, Francesco and I are incredibly sensitive and I see that in Augustine too. He, he takes a lot in and I've been working with him on finding a practice of his own. And, you know, again, it doesn't have to look exactly like the burying it, you know, and you don't always have to bury something. Sometimes stories aren't so intense that you have to put it somewhere to get it out of you, you know, but having some sort of emotional practice, um, you know, artwork is a great one. He, he checks out through reading. Like that's Mm. really his thing. And he's starting to get into writing too. So I'm hoping that that might be a way for him to dissipate a bit. But I try to talk about that enough that he knows that there are ways to move those things around. So dissipating is just their term for kind of a cleansing. Yeah. Okay, cool. Wow. Very, very fascinating. So did you want to get back into some of your feelings about what might have been going on with that with that hawk? Um, I really think that it was just sort of a, you know, not leaving your path. That was something that they were very, very intense about was 
you know, once you learn how to be in this world, but not of it and sort of like how to have, have one foot in this physical realm and one foot out. When you learn how to do that, you should never have to stray sort of, um, it's, this is something that was never really put into words for me, but was something that was discussed a lot. Um, this image actually on my chest rep mm. is something that he drew that represents the ability to remain in both worlds at all times and stay the same. And so I feel like when some when someone has put so much time and energy into transferring their gift, their knowledge into another person, of course it's going to be a little frustrating to see them like kind of go off that path. So I saw it as him giving me some sort of signal that I really needed to pull it together, um, which I did. You know, it was just also Yeah, it was maybe, almost a little bit of an angry, yeah, like, hey. Yeah, very. And I'm sure that I don't know exactly, I haven't quite exactly pinpointed the death part of it, um, but I'm sure that that had something to do with it too, just that maybe I hadn't learned that lesson yet still. Mm. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, what is coming up for me is, um, I'm just wondering about talking about this story. So my mom is from Belgium and, um, she's one of four siblings and, uh, my grandparents lived in Belgium and as my grandparents were dying, they thought the kids were going to keep the house. And my mom really wanted to more than anyone else. Yeah. And I think they weren't, everyone wasn't quite being honest with the grant, with their parent, their dying parents about their not having a plan to yeah. take over this beautiful house in this, uh, in this valley in the Belgian countryside with this river. I mean, it's so beautiful. It's like the secret garden. It's an old stone yeah, house. Sounds amazing. Yeah. Beautiful, like wallpaper on every single wall. It was not very big, but it was just so beautiful. But there was some stained glass windows and a few of the doors. So I think they died without knowing that there was no intention to really do anything with the home and it was yeah. sold. And I, I was very suddenly very interested and I was like 17 and I uh, went back in my twenties and, and all this, you know, I went back and I looked at the property while someone else lived there and uh, just kind of looking in the windows. And it was very odd because I grew up with this magical home that I'd visit every yeah. summer. And all of a sudden I was, um, I was not a, uh, it wasn't part of me anymore. Yeah. Like I was a stranger and I was like, oh, I can't go in that door. Yeah. This is my grandparents' beautiful home. So after that, when I got back to America, I started having nonstop nightmares that I was in the house and my grandparents were like ghosts that were kind of like corpses. Yeah. And they were fucking furious. Yeah. And I just got chills on my back saying that. And they, I would have dreams with my granddad who was, um, Ooh, I'm getting chills all up my back and my neck. But my granddad would be like his nose up against mine. Yeah. And he's a ghost or like a corpse. And he would be screaming at Ooh. my face. And there was another one where my, my granddad's, um, his office was what the one place there was no kids allowed in. You know, yeah. my granddad was a heart surgeon. 
And so, you know, there's, there is a shotgun behind the door. You know, there's this, all of his paperwork, his, his library kids weren't allowed in there. Yeah. And I would have a dream where I was standing in front of his office with my mother. And all of a sudden by like the act of a poltergeist, she'd get yanked into the, into the office and the door would slam shut. Wow. So I kept having these dreams and they're getting more intense. And yeah. eventually I was like, I think I know what this is. And I called my mom and say, Hey, I think May May and Pepe are really mad at you guys. Um, that they, that they, it wasn't quite honest with what was happening on their death with yeah. you guys taking the home. And once I relayed that information, the dreams completely stopped. And I started having dreams where I would go back to the home and it was no longer covered in dark and gloom and hauntedness, but yeah. it had sunlight in it and the walls and there was renovations. Yeah. And I was like, holy God. Renovations, like it was changing. Yes. Yeah. It, there was, becoming it was being, something else. Becoming something else. So- yeah, I. That's so fascinating hearing about the it coming in manifesting in real life with the hawk. Yeah, yeah, that is really, really interesting. And I do feel like sometimes just being heard is all it takes. Mm-hmm. You know, like a lot of times when we hear about reoccurring dreams that are really poignant or re- reoccurring like physical things, like misfortune or something. Um, it does seem like if you are avoiding listening or decoding that message, um, you know, it's, it's not, it's not going to stop or find peace until you do, which I fully understand. And there's a story. Let's, what's the best way to word this? Um, so big fan of Jim Morrison. Mm. And he has an interesting story about um, he when he was a boy, young child, was driving through the desert with his family. And a carriage, a horse carriage with Native American people had been hit by a car. And there was an old Native man on the ground, bleeding, dying. There was ambulances, you know. And when he was a child driving past that he said he met eyes with the man as he died like he watched his soul leave his body and he said that he felt like the man's soul had jumped into his body and he felt like um and there there are stories amongst certain tribes that and indigenous people that uh, if they're not ready to leave the earth and, and like a horrible, tragic thing happens like that, that they will put their spirit in something, a plant, um, a mm. person, in anything. And he later heard that and found that out. And so he kind of always attributed his dancing and like a lot of the things that came through him that he didn't really learn or like had no reason to be doing Um, to that. And whether that's true or Jim Morrison, you know, I don't know, but um, I do think that it's an interesting perspective. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's something that can happen in the dream realm too. Mm -hmm. I think the fact that it, you know, can happen physically Mm -hmm. is amazing. Um, but yeah, I've all, that's always really stuck with me for sure. Very, very cool. Well, it's getting a little bit later. 
and I'm going to have to head out of here soon. Okay. But I would like, do you want to talk about the animism? Sure. What that means to you? And it, did you have another story you wanted to share or, or you think that that one was good? Because I um, love that one. That was really powerful. Yeah. And, I, and I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. It really seems that, um, uh, well, death really seems to be, you know, in one podcast, the death of yes, a special animal with this peregrine falcon, the the firefly lady I just yeah. talked to. It was, she told a story about the death of her brother and appearing in the form of yeah. um, a imperial moth wow. over and over again. Wow. And on, on like the week on the, the anniversary of his death. So yeah. that's so fascinating. And I really appreciate hearing stories like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you want to talk a little bit about the animism? And, and the, yeah. And then after that, just, um, I guess we'll wrap it up and you can yeah. tell us where people can sign up for classes when COVID yeah. kind of goes away and, and where they can buy some of your medicine and anything like that. Sure thing. Um, animism is, you know, just to give the definition of it first, is knowing that everything around you, plants, trees, rocks, dirt, the earth, the wind, um, has a soul, has spirit. And I did not learn that word until after I knew that to be a thing. And it was really validating to hear that that was a word and something that other people were sure of. Um, now, do people, well, in the traditional sense of this term, do people say that this cup, this microphone, this computer has a spirit? I don't know about that. I definitely don't. Okay. Um, some people might. To some, me, it's... Some, something that my... Sorry to, inter- you're to fine. butt in, but something my uh, my Jungian analyst kind of told me that I found very striking is that there is belief that a tool does have, maybe not a spirit, but it has something it wants to do. So the sword has something it wants to do, the bow and arrow. Yeah. And so I was even, I thought, wow, that's really haunting because, you know, thinking, you know, I have a bunch of guns now and they're all yeah. for hunting, but the, what does that gun want to do? It's built to hunt. Yeah. But then I could buy another gun that's built to kill a person if they come into yeah. my house. And so do you want to own something that, you know, it just makes you think a little bit about what are the things that I own? What did they, yeah. especially something as dangerous and as intense and powerful as, as a firearm. Yeah. It's like, what is the spirit of this thing? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, I mean, I think it's a better perspective to have to think that way as a, a person, especially today where, you know, it's almost easier to not treat everything as though it's got meaning you know we just kind of skirt by and have all this technology and new inventions and plastic you know disposable things um and for me the animism is more with things that were already here Mm -hmm. um the belief that you know nature is sentient and the stories that it has to tell like when I first started taking classes in herbalism you know you hear over and over and over again listen to the plants, talk to the plants. Mm -hmm. And I did not understand that at first because it just seemed cheesy. But I realized at a certain point that I was already doing that. It's just, you know, it's hard to tell someone how to do that. 
And so when you just say, talk to the plants, listen, they'll tell you what to do. It just, it's not going to click for someone until they're actually doing it. And I think that, um, what that really means for me in herbalism, especially is when you are going outside, whether or not you have the intention to harvest plants uh, or spend time with them, listening is just being still enough that you are not treating nature as though you own it and mm. you're there to do what you're there to do. You are still enough and have the understanding that it's mutualism. It's, mm. or it should be at least, you know, if you think that way. And if you have that understanding and you go into nature with that understanding and you're still enough to listen, that's when you hear, you know, what a lot of herbalists say is like, if you've never heard a no from a plant, then mm. you're not quite there yet. Because plants absolutely say no. All my and, herbalist friends have, have yeah. told me, ask the plant before picking For it. For sure. And that looks different. And I'm sure you have probably had some of these experiences with hunting because I oh, realized yeah. at a certain point that, like, that was very much a part of that animism and mutualism, too. And when you have to be so still— and wait so long, and you mm -hmm. might not even see an animal for that day or days, weeks. You start to naturally look for signs of it, right? Like you've you you know you've done tracking, and that's something that like comes naturally mm. if you're listening. And I you know talk to hunters out here that appear to be you know rednecks or like mm -hmm. very disconnected. Um, but you even will hear from them once you get to talking to them about hunting that after spending so much time in the woods, like very still, they've started to notice, you know, the certain bugs and the flowers that they eat and the tracks and the, where the animals flock and what they're eating. And if there's an area where there's a lot of deer eating that plant, that plant is actually more prevalent. Mm. And, you know, the way plants are spread through animal feces and all the mutualism in nature. And I just feel for me that animism is recognizing that, listening to it, understanding it, and never thinking that you know the message or the answer. Um, yeah, it's a hard one. I really wish that I could come up with the right words to teach that. Like, mm -hmm. I would love to give that to people. Uh, but it can be... It can take people years, even if they have, you know, an herbalism practice. And some people might never think that way. Like, mm. you know, not everybody has to. But I do think that if you spend enough time in nature with plants or with animals, it is something that you come to understand. It's just a kind of a fact to me mm. in nature. Mm. Yes. Well, thank you. Beautiful. Um, okay. Well, let's wrap it up. Tell us a little bit about uh, the Instagram account. Okay. The website. And uh, I'm getting baked here. I feel like the computer is going to end up, end up yeah, frying apart. For sure. Sun. It is very hot. Um, so, again, we are Cedar Hill Homestead. You can find us on social media that way. Um, our website is cedarhillhomesteadtn for Tennessee.com. 
And really, my Instagram and my website is where you'll find the most information. Um, after having to cancel the classes this year, I got on Patreon, which I really love. Oh, I think nice. that that's, I wish that Patreon had been more of a thing when I was learning because, you know, herbalism classes you have to sign up for and really commit to a long time. And I find that I like teachers before I like the class. And so being able to experience lots of teachers is amazing. And so being able to get on Patreon and learn from so many people and sort of design your own school, kind of like you do with podcasts, is really cool. So I'm very active on Patreon as well. It's our Instagram. We do a lot of plant walks and um, educating. And then if you want to support my work a little bit more, um, Patreon is a great place to go. We do full hour long plant walks every month. And then I'm probably going to work on getting some of our classes recorded. Um, mm, because cool. nice. yeah, I just don't know that it might be quite a while before we're doing in-person stuff at the level that we enjoy doing. And with everything going on, I feel even more of a responsibility to, educate and share information so you can definitely stay up to date on that through our instagram cedar hill homestead or our website um and then as far as products go right now it's been you know just us i'm working on bringing some more people into it so we sell out pretty fast um but we operate in monthly releases that way we can work you know seasonally and small batch and maintain that um still have time to fulfill orders and then restock so if you're interested in supporting our work in that way, um, signing up for our newsletter is the best thing to do. We okay, send nice. out a little reminder of exactly when the releases are, and then you can get your hands on some product. Very, very cool. And that's a great point because there are a lot of people kind of talking about the same things, whether it's herbalism or foraging or hunting. Or yeah. what came up for me was like new age stuff. And you're actually trying to find the person that you resonate with to get that information. Like with yeah. the new age stuff, you know, you hear the same types of, of philosophies and, uh, you know, how to better your life. But, yeah. you know, half of it, the majority of you are like, oh, this is cheesy crap. And yeah. Until you find the person who really resonates with, yes. with your lifestyle. and Absolutely. Fascinating. Yeah. Very cool. This has been a pleasure. I think I'll have to do Francesco another time. Yeah. I think um, I'm going to come back to Tennessee. Tennessee's amazing. Yeah. You and should come I'll, back. Maybe you'll have some some peeps I can come uh, interview. Yeah, I'll definitely. do him too. For I'll sure. make it a, its own trip. But yeah, yeah, we're heading to Missouri. All right. We've got eight Enjoy hours it. to drive ahead here. Shoo. All righty, later.